shape us into the very image of Christ, for we pray in His name. Amen. So, uh, proclaim quit. <laughs> Unexpectedly. <laughs> Let's see if we can open this back up here, friends. And just a second here, we'll see if we can get this going. I don't know what happened there. Uh, let's see if we can get on the air again. Yeah, it probably won't work now. All right, let's see. See if we've got anything. You know, just a second, and we'll see. Very good. Okay. So we are. Uh, this is week twelve, and uh, we're looking at the public ministry of Christ. And we, for quite a while, we've been looking at Jesus at the festival of the Tabernacles around that time. This is John chapter 9 <clears throat> that we just started last week. Jesus is now in Jerusalem and uh, he will leave uh, um, and go just a little bit north for a while, but uh, mainly around Jerusalem. And uh, we are here in the fall of AD 29. So this chart is based upon the fact that Jesus would have a three-and-a-half-year ministry, uh, which is very probable. And uh, so we're in the fall, and of course the Passion Week that comes up, um, we'll see that that's in the spring of AD 30. So, uh, you know, we're just about six months here from the Passion Week itself. <clears throat> And this is the Feast of the Tabernacles, which happens around September. So this is around September or so, October of AD 29. And uh, this is about the last thing that happens around that time, uh, this healing of the blind man. We looked at verses 1 through 8 last week, and uh, I'm just, I put those in your notes there, the verses, just to refresh our memory here of what happened. There was this man who was blind from birth, and uh, it just says, as they went along, as Jesus and his disciples went along, it doesn't tell us exactly where they were in Jerusalem. But remember, they asked, who sinned, this man or his parents, because they had the view that uh, all suffering and difficulties like that are caused by someone personally sinning either him or maybe his parents when his mother was pregnant. And Jesus says, remember, no, it's neither one. The cause of his uh, blindness from birth is not because of anyone's personal act of sin. Um, this is the reason he was born blind, Jesus says, was so that uh, the works of God might be displayed on him. That is... <laughs> He was born blind so that Jesus could come along and heal him now as part of his ministry. So it's all part of the great plan of God. And we said that's you know, where we sort of fit in too. We, we never know. We, we hardly ever know. We, we don't have any way to read providence. We can read scripture and find out what God tells us, but we can't read what's happening in our own lives most of the time why this happens on a particular day. We know God has some reason to plan. Sometimes we can figure it out. We can, we can get an idea of what's, what, what God is doing, and, but we can't always be sure. And I'm sure this man didn't know 
why he was born blind and so forth. And so Jesus says, no, he was, he, this happened so that he could be healed and so forth. And he does. Remember, he heals him. He, uh, he, um, he does it in an unusual method in that he spits on the ground in verse 6, makes some mud with saliva and puts it on the man's eyes um, and then tells him to go wash down in the pool of Siloam. Uh, in verse 7. And uh, he did, and he went home seeing. And remember, the Pool of Siloam is down there in the southern end of Jerusalem, the southern end of Mount Zion, actually. And remember this on, the, on that, on that uh, model in Jerusalem. It's a very famous model. It's usually called the model, model of the Holy, at the Holy Land Hotel, because when we were there, when people went there, it was always at this Holy Land Hotel. <laughs> and so one of the things that tourists would do, or tourist guides would do, is when you go to Jerusalem, they would take you to this model first and kind of explain ancient Jerusalem. And then they would take you around a tour of Jerusalem and say, okay, you remember that model? And this is kind of where, so they kind of give you an idea. So it was a very helpful thing. But then they moved this model to the Israeli Museum so that kind of really messes things up because people go to the usually the Israeli museum the last thing you do when you after you've gone and saw everything. So uh, that's where it's located at now. But it was a, it's a helpful thing, and you've seen me show a lot of slides from it. So he goes home seeing. So now we come to verse eight where we left off last time. The reaction as a result of this healing. First, the reaction of the neighbors. His neighbors. And those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the man, same man, who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, it only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. That is, his neighbors are asking. He replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to the Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is the man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. So I say here, since this man had been blind from birth and had obviously been begging to support himself all his life, he would have been well known to his neighbors. They would have been astonished that this blind beggar could now see. Some were sure it was the same individual. Others believed that the blind man had disappeared and someone who looked like him was before them now. But this speculation comes to an end when the blind man says, I am the man. So naturally, the, the neighbors want to know what's happened. So they, uh, they, they ask him questions and so forth about the healing and so forth. Um, and he summarizes the basic facts, what happened to him and so forth. And I, I guess on hearing this story, they decide that We've got to investigate this. And I think that's apparently why they take him to the Pharisees. They're taking him to the religious leaders to say, okay, this man was born blind. What's going on here? Explain this, you know, in terms of our religion and so forth. Apparently, they're, you know, mostly they're probably seeking advice from the synagogue leaders. They're going to the local synagogue. They're, they're trying to get advice as to what, you know, happened here. What, what do we make of this healing? Uh, as later we'll see, um, uh, the, uh, th this man is threatened with excommunication and is excommunicated uh, 
actually from the synagogue. So now we see the reaction of the Pharisees, verses 14 through 17. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He says, he put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. So the idea is, again, for the Pharisees, this is a Sabbath transgression. Though, as we have said, it's not really a breaking of the Old Testament Sabbath command, but of the oral law that had grown up around the command. Healing was forbidden on the Sabbath, except in life-threatening situations, which would not apply here. And you remember all these regulations that we find in later Ju Judaism, the oral law, what you can't do on the Sabbath, and kneading... <laughs> is one of the things that's listed here in number 23. You can't knead any bread, you can't make any bread, you can't do anything you know, like that on the Sabbath. And Jesus had done that, so obviously he's guilty of, uh, you know, he's doing mud, but he's, he's doing something prohibited. So uh, he's obviously guilty of a Sabbath violation, which we've seen is something Jesus is charged with throughout his ministry. Verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, How can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turn again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, He is a prophet. So now the Pharisees, like the crowd in chapter 7, are divided over Jesus. Some focusing only on the supposed Sabbath violation, conclude that Jesus has not been sent by God in any sense. He is not a messenger from God. Others focusing on the healing miracle itself find it hard to believe that Jesus is a sinner. Um, the man um, who was healed, unlike the crowd in chapter 7, uh, instantly takes sides here and says, he is a prophet, you know. <laughs> So he, he immediately takes the side of Jesus here and says he's a prophet. Well, then the parents are questioned here. The, the religious leaders are trying to get to the bottom of this. Is this really a miracle? Whatever it was, he broke the Sabbath, but what happened here? They still did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they ask? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So since the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees here, cannot agree on what's going on, they decide to you know, investigate more fully, so they, they bring in the parents here. They, you know, maybe there's a mistake, they think, you know, which you know, if they discover this will solve the dilemma. So they, they interrogate his parents. And the parents are feel fearful of the authorities, for they fear they'll be expelled from the synagogue. So they're unwilling to confirm the bare facts, he's our son, you know, they'll confirm that. He's our son, he's born blind, now he can see, but we don't know anything beyond that. Um, they probably knew more, maybe, but they're not willing to, 
offer any more information. They don't want to get in trouble here. They don't want to uh, get in trouble from the religious authorities. Uh, see, Jewish people would be connected and have been connected down through the centuries. It's not necessarily so much now because there's all kinds of different kind of Jews. There's Orthodox Jews. What you see in Israel is sometimes called ultra-Orthodox, those people with the black and the little curls, you know, on the... You see ultra-Orthodox in Israel, you see them in New York, but there's Orthodox Jews who uh, keep, try to keep the law religiously, keep the Sabbath and so forth. Um, then there are Reformed Jews and Conservative Jews. And most Jews, most Jews are not really religious, believe it or not. Uh, they're not religious in the sense of they're ethnically, they have, they have a... Uh, they have a uh, they associate with Judaism as a cause, as an ethnic thing. Many of them are pro-Israel. Some of them are not, but many of them are pro-Israel. Many of the people who uh, you know, were in Zionists, who were interested in the formation of Israel and establishing, they were not really religious, as we might think of, Orthodox Jews. And most Jews in, Jer in Jerusalem are not Orthodox Jews. But Jerusalem abides, for the most part, by Orthodox law. That is, they don't open things on the Sabbath or Friday night sundown. Things are closed until Saturday evening and so forth. So that they have a lot of influence, but uh, there's not really a lot of Jews who practice you know, Judaism to a great degree. It's more of a custom. You know, it's, it's sort of like people in our country who have, Christian, have Christmas customs, you know, they may have a Christmas tree. They may have a baby Jesus there. They may have religious things. They may say a prayer. And even though they don't go to church or you know, anything like that, they, they still have this, they still believe in Christmas. They talk about it. It's, it's, it's become, you know, that kind of thing. So, the, so the, these people were associated with the synagogue, and that was their social network. And uh, to be expelled from the, the synagogue, even, you know, this day, the Middle Ages, on through Europe and all things, uh, you know, y y if, you, if you were cut off from the synagogue, you were just cut off. You know, it might be the same thing today maybe for a, a Muslim who comes to Christ. You know, if, he come, if a person comes to Christ from, from Islam, he tends to be cut off often from his family, from his friends and so forth, even in this country. So it, that's the way it was here. And so these people are afraid to get in trouble with the religious authorities. They would lose all contacts. People would uh, avoid them. They would be, it could be economically devastating to be cut off from the synagogue. And so they insist, you know, ask his son, he's of legal age, which would be 13. That's the legal age in Judaism is 13. That's when they have like bar mitzvah. You know, a bar mitzvah is where bar mitzvah means son of the commandment. Uh, uh, son of the commandment. So that means you are an adult in Judaism. You know, you're, you're, that is you're responsible for keeping the law yourself. You're responsible for that. So they say, you know, ask him. Well, then they asked the man himself. So they go to ask him, verses 24 through 34. A second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, 
whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Apparently, the authorities have now reached the conclusion that Jesus is to be condemned. We know this man is a sinner, they say. But they still have a problem. If a genuine miracle has occurred, has been done, how can the agent of that miracle be a sinner? The only solution is to call the man who was healed and get him to tell the truth about what happened. So the, since they have concluded that Jesus is a sinner, the only way this seeming miracle can be explained is that you know, something must be kept from them. There's, there's some missing information because we know a sinner could not heal a blind man. So they charge this man kind of officially, tell the truth, give glory to God by telling the truth. Now this, this phrase, you know, give glory to God, here is, is kind of a technical phrase. It doesn't mean, you know, give praise to God. It's just a way of giving somebody an oath. Uh, we see this, you know, like in the Old Testament, remember with the case of Achan, the man who hid the treasure in his tent and so forth. And Joshua says to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and honor him. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. It's kind of a way of saying, you know, here am I putting you under oath. <laughs> give glory to God. Here, tell, tell me what, don't hide it. Tell the truth. Tell me what you've done, and so forth. And that's what they're doing here. They're saying, here, I'm, we're kind of putting you under oath. You know, now tell us the truth. We know this man's a sinner. Uh, you know, give us the truth on this because we know he couldn't heal, heal anybody. But the man refuses to disavow his previous statement and affirm that a miracle had been done. Verse 26, Then they ask him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? <laughs> do you want to become his disciples too? In order for the religious authorities to maintain their view that Jesus is a sinner, they have no other recourse but to go over the same ground again. You know, at first, the man didn't seem qualified to debate with these learned Pharisees as to whether Jesus was a sinner. He says, I don't know whether he's a sinner or not. I just know one thing, I was blind, now I healed. But now, all of a sudden, uh, <laughs> they keep pressing the point, uh, you know, trying to find some discrepancy in his telling of the incident. And the man becomes rather sarcastic here, doesn't it? <laughs> you, know, you know, I told you. You want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? You know, as he's being very sorry, he's getting very bold here with these religious leaders. Well, they don't like that, verse 28. Then they, then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. This man's uh, suggestion incenses them, and they respond by hurling insults. The bottom line is an, an authority question. I mean, they know that God spoke to Moses face to face, you know, in the Old Testament, gave him the law at Mount Sinai, and they see Jesus as breaking this law. So he must be in opposition to Moses because he's breaking the law. Now, as we said, he's not really breaking the Sabbath law. The Sabbath was don't do your regular work on this. That's what the Sabbath command is. Not, you, Sabbath command forbids doing your regular work. But it doesn't forbid <laughs> doing, you know, anything, any kind of work, as they, they had expanded that, that law. So Jesus really didn't break the Sabbath. 
ever, but by this oral law, this tradition uh, that is now incorporated into Judaism today, it's part of what's called the Talmud and the Mishnah and so forth. Yes, he had broke their rules. Uh, you know, Jesus would say in the Gospels, uh, the Bible says, the Old Testament says, but you say. He would contrast what the Bible says and what they said, contrasting that, that law. So if this man is siding with Jesus, then he must be Jesus' disciples. Um, there they conclude. Verse 30, this, the man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a, blind, a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So the man becomes you know, emboldened and more sarcastic by what he sees as the illogical thinking of the authorities and they, their failure to grasp the obvious. They have already declared that a sinner could not do such a miracle. You know, healing, as I say, of the blind is rare in the Old Testament and there's no instance of healing someone born blind. He says, nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. There's the case there in 2 Kings of Elisha who, um, who you know, God, by God's command, they, he, they blind some people and then Elisha, they open their eyes, but not someone born blind. Uh, there's a well-known story in the Apocrypha about a man by the name of Tobit, and we studied that, and he, he became blind through an accident, and then he was healed ultimately by the work of an angel. So that's kind of a familiar story, but nothing like this, a man born blind. The man adds that Jesus cannot be a sinner since God does not listen to sinners, but only the godly man who does his will. The scripture does often suggest that a relationship between uh, suggest a relationship between the righteousness of the one praying and the effectiveness of his prayers. So, you know, what he says there is theologically true. I mean, this you know, Psalm 68:66. If I cherish sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. So, there is a relationship between my own personal. Uh, obedience and God answering prayers, you know, in that sense. The, uh, Proverbs 15, the Lord is far from the wicked, but He hears the prayer of the righteous. 1 John 3, 21, dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from Him anything we ask because we keep His commands and do what He pleases. So this is true. Theologically, what the man says is correct. Uh, and so he states this obvious conclusion. If this man were not from God, he would do nothing. Um, now, in a strict theological sense, uh, it's, it's not completely valid um, when he says, uh, if, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Um, you know, um, since it... This healing of this man does not absolutely prove that Jesus is from God in the sense that um, 
Miracles are not an infallible guide to spiritual authority. Notice I said infallible guide because we know that miracles were used in Jesus' ministry to authenticate His ministry. In the case of the apostles, they performed these miracles. They, do, they are an indicator of authority, but I, I said infallible because we know that Satan at times can perform the miraculous. At least we have instances, you know, think about those Egyptian magicians, you know, in the time of Moses. They were able to perform some minor sort of miracles or tricks or something. Um, and the New Testament warns against that. Uh, Jesus says himself, Matthew 7, 21 through 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, and your name drive out demons, and your name perform many miracles? Now, it's hard to know absolutely if that's genuinely true or some of that's false, but, you know, Satan is able to do some things, and so it's possible that, that people were able to seemingly drive out demons, it apparently... Uh, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So miracles are not an infallible sign that someone is on God's side. Remember 2 Thessalonians 2.9, the coming of the lawless one, the Antichrist, will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs, that's miracles, and wonders, that's miracles. Those are two words for miracles. That serve the line. So here is Satan working through the Antichrist who will be able to perform something that seemingly are miraculous. So I just wanted to put that in there to say that, uh, you know, the ultimate authority we have is Scripture. That's our infallible authority, and we judge everything by Scripture. Uh, if someone comes along and performs a miracle, even, you know, Moses warned in the Old Testament about prophets who come along, you have to judge them by Scripture. That, you know, he said, even if they come along and do a miracle, if they lead you away from the Lord, then put them to death. <laughs> so miracles are not an infallible guide to tell us who's on God's side and who's not. They are, they're an indicator of that. But it's also important that what they say is in line with Scripture, that they're speaking the truth in line with Scripture. Um, verse 34, to this they replied, that is, when a man says, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. The Pharisees are outraged at being lectured by this man. In their rage to attack him, they actually admit the man has been blind from birth. They sort of admit the miracle. You were steeped in sin at birth. Thus, obviously, Jesus must have healed him. In their blindness, the Pharisees have missed the importance of this healing as a sign of the Messianic age like Isaiah 29, 18. In that day, speaking of the Messianic age, the deaf will hear the words of the scroll, and out of gloom and darkness the eyes of the blinds will see. Instead, they missed that, that, you know, here's, a, here's an indicator of the Messiah. They threw him out. Now, this is not just, you know, physical expulsion from the building or something, but this is what we, you know, we would say is excommunication. They cut him off from the synagogue, all contacts. Other people are not supposed to have intercourse with him, talk to him, help him, 
uh, and that's what his parents expressed fear about back in 22, verse 22. You remember, it says they were afraid to say much because they were afraid they were going to be kicked out of the synagogue. So that's unfortunately what happened to this man. Let's look at the outcome, verses 35 through 41. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I might believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the blind man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. The man who had been healed by Jesus had never actually seen or really met him since he had been commanded to go and wash the pool of Siloam when he was blind. When Jesus learned he had been excommunicated in the synagogue, Jesus found him and challenged him to put his faith in the Son of Man. By his question, do you believe in the Son of Man? Uh, Jesus is not asking, do you believe in the existence of the Son of Man? You know, but do you put your trust in Him? The Son of Man is Jesus' term for the Messiah. Do you put your faith in the Son of Man? Are you trusting in Him, you know, as we would? And the man did, clearly here. The man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped Him. Verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see, and those who will see become blind. Although Jesus is addressing the blind man, this conversation must have taken place in a public setting since we learn in the next verse that he is overheard by some Pharisees when he makes this statement, uh, I have come into this world so the blind will see and those who see will become blind. By coming into the world, Jesus brought not only physical sight for blind men, but also spiritual sight for those who would trust him. As we noted in 3.17, judgment was not the primary purpose of Jesus' mission. That is, he comes, I didn't come to condemn the world. That wasn't my mission this time. There is coming a time at the great white throne, yeah, when Jesus returns and all that. But not, not this, that wasn't his primary mission. But it is a result, for men were forced to make a decision either for or against him. And this in turn would determine their destiny. So saving some condemns others. You know, if, you're not, if you reject Jesus, then that brings judgment. You're bringing judgment. So in that sense, Jesus brought judgment because he gave people an opportunity to accept him or reject him. So Jesus has indeed come for judgment in that sense. Now the blind in the first part of this verse, for judgment I have come into this world so the blind will see, refers to those who are spiritually blind and know it. I've come so the blind will see. Those who are spiritually blind, they recognize that, they turn to Jesus. And those who see will become blind. Those who, who see means those who think they see. They're like the Pharisees. <laughs> the Pharisees think they see. They think they are spiritually alive and awakened and understand all things spiritual. Um, but those who claim to have spiritual sight apart from Jesus will be shown to be the blind people they really are. That's what he means when he says, those who see, those who think they see, like the Pharisees, by rejecting me, will become really blind. It'll be shown 
that they are ultimately spiritually blind, what they really are. Verse 40, Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Jesus' words make some Pharisees who were listening suspect that he was referring to them. Jesus' words, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin, probably refers to those who are blind in the sense spoken of in the first part of verse 39. That is, those who are blind know it and respond to the revelation of the Son. So Jesus says, if you were blind, like this blind man, if you're, if you're really spiritually blind, and you recognize that and you trust Jesus, you won't be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, <laughs> your guilt remains. Um, so if, if, um, if the Pharisees would have acknowledged their spiritual darkness, or if any of us, anybody we know, will acknowledge their spiritual darkness, then they can come to Jesus for forgiveness of their sin. That's the first step everybody has to do that comes to Christ, isn't it? They've got to acknowledge their spiritual darkness. And in our own sinful state, that's the one thing we don't want to do. <laughs> you know, it's not natural to us to think, yes, I'm really a sinner. Uh, I mean, you know, people will say, yeah, I've done some things, but I'm as good as the next guy, you know. So no one really wants to admit that they're as bad as they really are, that they're really uh, sinful before God and condemned in that sense. They, they can't believe that. Um, so um, if the Pharisees would have come, as we said, they would have, of course, been forgiven. But by claiming to have this spiritual sight, they're really blind to their true condition, just like unbelievers are, and they remain in their sinful state until they come to the truth. Well, that brings us then to the end of chapter uh, 9, and we come now to chapter 10, and we'll get a little start into this, see how far we can go here. So chapter 10, verses 1 through 21, this is a discourse on the good shepherd. Um, the shepherd forms his flock. In 10, 1 through 18, Jesus presents what John calls in verse 6 a figure of speech. The NIV says figure of speech. Uh, the figure here is a metaphor or a comparison. A metaphor is just a comparison where the comparison is not actually stated. But anyway, it's metaphorical. It's a comparison. It's a figure of speech. It's based on Palestinian sheep farming. These sheep pens were sometimes, as in the case here, large, usually walled enclosures where several shepherds would place their flocks in the pen at night. The sheep would be watched over at night by a hired under-shepherd, who is the gatekeeper of verse 3. In the morning, each shepherd would gather his own sheep and lead them out to pasture for the day. So that's the cultural background that's the metaphor. Now here's Homer Kent, Dr. Kent. He kind of explains this for us. Let's see how this works. He says, The shepherd in the story represents Christ, 
and the fold, because he talks about the sheepfold, is a picture of Judaism, the religious system in which God's people were kept until Christ came. This seems clear from 10.16 where Jesus calls the Gentiles, other sheep I have which are not of this fold. So that makes it pretty clear. Jesus talks about this fold, Judaism, but I have other sheep which are not of this fold. And here we're going to see a really uh, a kind of a future glimpse of the church because he says, I'm going to take the sheep from this fold and this other sheep over here and I'm going to bring them together into the you know, Jew and Gentile in one body. So we, we see this right here in John. Uh, Jesus is communicating this new entity, the church, which we know nothing about uh, from John's gospel up to this time, really. Um, it, it must, Ken says, it must also be remembered that Jesus was talking to the representatives of Judaism who had just seen the blind man removed from its communion from the synagogue. Thus, he was explaining how Judaism is related to the Messiah and his followers. The fold does not picture heaven, for there can be no thieves or robbers there. So remember, the fold is Judaism. It's not heaven because uh, he says there's thieves and robbers in this place. Nor is the picture of salvation or the church, for the shepherd found his sheep already in this fold and led them out of it. So that's just kind of telling us what the metaphor, what the figure of speech is about. Christ is the shepherd here. Now, he's also going to change it, and he's going to become the gate, but he's the shepherd, and the foal is Judaism, and he is leading people out of Judaism as true believers. He's calling out from Judaism uh, genuine believers, people who will follow him. So he's using this illustration, this figure of speech. He starts off, he comes the proper way, verse, chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Very truly I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The thieves and the robbers are the religious leaders who are more interested in fleecing the sheep than in guiding, nurturing, and guarding them. So he's talking here probably about the leaders of chapter 9 should have had ears to hear Jesus' claims, you know, and recognize him as the revelation from God, but who instead, you know, belittle the sheep. Here's the blind man. They belittle him and expel him. <laughs> so these are not really true shepherds. Verse 2, the one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The shepherd Christ enters lawfully by means of the gate. The meta this metaphor is probably drawing from Ezekiel 34 where the Lord berates the shepherds of Israel the religious leaders of Ezekiel's day. In that chapter, we learn how they failed the people. But God promises to send His own shepherd, my servant David, and He will tend them, and He will tend them and be their shepherd. So we're probably, Jesus is probably drawing from Ezekiel 34 here to get, to get this illustration about the shepherd. You know, and He'll send my servant David. Well, of course, you know, that's David's son, the Messiah, Jesus, is the rightful shepherd that Ezekiel is talking about here. Verse 3, number 2, he calls his sheep. The gatekeeper, gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his sheep by name, and he leads them out. We understand that Near Eastern shepherds have been known to stand outside the gate pen 
and call their own sheep that will respond to only their individual voice. <laughs> you know, what just came to my mind was babe. <laughs> just looking to see who knows what that is. <laughs> but that's the principle, you know. I mean, here's this guy talking to sheep and the sheep, you know, responds. But that's True, I remember when we were in Israel, we, you know, we saw shepherds and, and that kind of thing. We were, to, we were told by our God that that's literally true, that they can actually do that in Israel today. You know, uh, The implication of the fact that he calls his own sheep is that they are in some way his own before he calls. That's important. That they are in some way his own before he calls because he calls his own sheep out of Judaism, out of the fold. The foal's not the church. The foal is not salvation. The foal is just Judaism. And that includes saved people or people who are going to be saved. He's called them out, his elect. As we've previously seen, they have, been, they have been given to him by the Father. Remember John 6, all those the Father gives me will come to me. So there are these elect out there, elect in Judaism here. And when Jesus calls them, like the blind man, he came to Jesus. Jesus comes to the sheep pen of Judaism and calls his own sheep. They'll come out and they'll constitute his messianic flock, we could say. And that's the blind man is a great example. And so when the true shepherd comes, they recognize his voice. The religious leaders don't. <laughs> They're not one of his sheep. They don't recognize his voice, but the blind man does. Number three, he leads his sheep, 10, 4 through 6. Um, when he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. So unlike Western shepherds who drive their sheep with dogs, in the Near East it's common for the shepherd to go ahead of the sheep and to call them to follow him. The sheep will not follow a stranger, a thief, or a robber. So Jesus' elect sheep inevitably follow him. And this reminds us, you know, of how Jesus, he's the master, he leads his disciples. We follow him. Verse 6, Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling him. The Pharisees are not his sheep. They're spiritually blind. They don't understand this illustration, this figure of speech. Now he changes it a little bit. The shepherd becomes the gate, 10, 7 through 10. In verses 1 through 5, Jesus the shepherd enters the sheep pen through the gate, but here he becomes the gate through which the sheep are led in and out. Thus these verses are an expansion, kind of a modification of some of the metaphors in verses 1 through 5. One, one, he's the door to salvation, 10, 7 through 9. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and out and find pasture. So here we see a contrast between the gate, which may also be the shepherd, as we know, and the thieves and robbers probably a reference to messianic pretenders. They promised a political salvation, but Jesus gives to his real sheep true salvation. 
Um, if you know, study the history of Judaism here, you'll know that there were Messianic pretenders who came on the scene before Jesus. Uh, that's mentioned, and Peter mentions that in one of the sermons in Acts. There are Messianic pretenders who come after Jesus in the second century. There's a very famous guy named Bar Kokhba who claims to be, and the Rabbi Akaba says he is the Messiah and so forth. So there's Messianic pretenders, but Jesus gives to his, his real sheep true salvation. Only he is the gate of salvation. And later, you know, we'll see John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life, he says. No one comes to the Father except through me. So they'll come in to the safety of the pen and they'll go out to find pasture. They will come in and go out. That's what he's talking about. Uh, so this is an idiom for carrying on their life, their affairs, that they'll, they'll live their lives, you know, because they come to me uh, and so forth. Number two, he is a door to abundant life. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. Those messianic pretenders never gave the people what they promised, but only war, suffering, and slavery. But Jesus has come so that you may have life and have it to the full. Life to the full means life beyond what we can hardly imagine. So this life, this eternal life, is, is, is not just an extension of mortal life. This eternal life is not just, you know, we're going to live longer. But as we know, it's a far richer life than we've ever known. We know that already because we've been saved and we experience spiritual life now. And we can say it's a far richer life. It's, it's life with a purpose, <laughs> you know. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tremendous life. We have access to God in prayer that we never had before. We know that we're pardoned. We know that we have a home in heaven. We have God's Spirit to illuminate our minds and hearts to the truth. We have the gifts of the Spirit. We have God to guide us, you know. And this gives us a full life. Now, it's even going to be fuller in the future, a glorified body and all that that in, entails. So Christ has come to give us life and to have it, we're going to have it to the very full. And we have it, you know, much fuller than what we had before. The shepherd uh, protects his flock, 10, 11 through 18. He dies for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hard hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks and the flock, the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hard hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Jesus now returns to the metaphor of verses 1 through 5 with himself as the shepherd, the good shepherd. Good has the idea of noble or worthy. What makes Jesus the good shepherd is his selfless sacrifice of himself for the sheep, even to the point of death. Obviously here the metaphor speaks directly of Jesus' mission. The reason my God loves me is that I lay down my life. He'll say in verse 17. On the other hand, the hard hand was motivated by self-interest and personal gain. 
So hard hands watched over the sheep when it was to their advantage, but they wouldn't risk their lives for someone else's property. The, again, the reference here may be to the religious leaders who profited from their professional labors, but they really didn't have any real concern for the people of Israel. They didn't really have this kind of concern. And, uh, you know, that's a wonderful thing to know that our Savior is concerned for us. He's given His life for us. And as Paul says, how will He not with Him give us all things? So He's, you know, he's going to give us all things, everything we need. He has, there's no one who has a greater concern than we do. You know, we like to think, you know, when we do, parents, most parents have a greater concern for their children than other people do, you know, than, than their neighbors do or so forth, uh, naturally. But no one is concerned for us like Jesus is. So no matter what happens in our life, we can know that this is, this is our Savior. This is our shepherd. Two, he knows his sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. So the shepherd and the sheep have a mutual knowledge of each other that is comparable to the mutual knowledge of the Father and the Son. It's comparable. It's not the same, obviously. Uh, but the intimacy between the Father and the Son is like, Jesus says, the intimacy between a believer and the Savior, which is quite an amazing thing, isn't it? He gathers his sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. Remember, this sheep pen is Judaism. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. The other sheep that are not part of this sheep pen must be a reference to Gentiles who are not part of the sheep pen of Judaism. Jesus will bring some sheep out of the sheep pen of Judaism and other sheep from the Gentiles to make one new flock with one shepherd. Remember Matthew 16, 18. On this rock I will build my church. Um, it reminds me of this extended passage in Ephesians where Paul explains this idea about the church. Um, Therefore remember that formerly you, are you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcision by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from the citizenship in Israel. You weren't part of this foal and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made the two groups, as he, Jesus just says right here, <laughs> the two, uh, there'll be one flock and one shepherd, who has made the two groups one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus Himself as the chief cornerstone in Him, the whole building is joined together 
and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. So this mission to bring the Gentiles in is what is in the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all Gentiles. It's you know, interesting that the Greek word, the Greek word uh, ethne, ethnos, means um, nation. Ethnos, the Greek word means nation. The plural means nations or Gentiles. Same Greek word. So there's only one Greek word, and it means sometimes nations, sometimes Gentiles. So in the Great Commission, we usually translate it nations. Go and make disciples of all nations, because he talks about, you know, go to the, for the most part of the earth and so forth, nations. But remember that word nations is Gentiles. So he's, he's including that, you know, which is one of the amazing things when you think about the book of Acts. I often mention this when I'm teaching Acts, you know. The disciples didn't seem to get that. You read the early chapters of the book of Acts as we're going through, and, you know, you think the first thing they would do is say, you know, what we've got to set up here is the, is the Foreign Mission Society of Jerusalem. We've got to set up the foreign... Because Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. You know, that's what he told us to do, right? Do they, do they, <laughs> they don't seem to be interested in missions at all. You know, they just hanging around Jerusalem. And, you know, that's it. That's all that happens. Now, in chapter 8, they'll get scattered, you remember? They get scattered abroad. and then, So it takes some time, you know. God has to get a man, the Apostle Paul, to really sort of take the gospel, you know, out to the Gentile world. But they're not really following. And it's funny, in the book of Acts, they just don't follow the Great Commission, as far as I can see. And he tells them that in Acts 1-8, too, you know. But they don't seem to follow that here. Uh, but it is carried out. Ultimately, you know, in the book of Acts, the gospel goes to all these nations. Uh, the reason, uh, verse 17, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay, down, I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my Father. So the love of the Father for the Son is eternally linked with the unqualified obedience of the Son to the Father, culminating with the greatest act of obedience of all, His death and resurrection. Um, although Jesus was, to, um, was, was put to death, of course, by His enemies, it was all part of God's plan, as we know, of to, for the Son to lay down His life. All right, so um, let's, well, let's go ahead and look at these two verses, then we'll stop here. Verse 19, the Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? The result of Jesus' discord is that the Jews are again divided, as in 9.16. Some concluded he was mad possibly from his determination to lay down his life for the sheep. This madness, they conclude, is the result of being demon-possessed, but others, recalling the healing of the blind man, cannot accept that conclusion. 
So that brings us to the end of, of uh, that part of chapter 10. And it's a good place to stop because the next section is actually a later time period. Remember, we said we are in the, this, this stuff seems to happen around the fall of AD 29, September. And now we come to the Feast of Dedication in the next section. The Feast of Dedication is basically December. It's what um, the Jews call today Hanukkah. Hanukkah. Uh, which they, I guess, have already celebrated. Remember, the Jewish calendar is a, is a, is a uh, 48 weeks. It's a calendar 30 days per month. So these, these Jewish holidays rotate. And so uh, this year, I remember Hanukkah started about uh, something like about 10 days ago or something, so it's probably over now. Um, and uh, this is a festival that's not in the Old Testament, as we'll see. Uh, it's something that uh, began in the, uh, in the second century B.C. Uh, with the Maccabean Revolt and so forth and so on. But it's still celebrated today. It's quite popular, uh, you know, because it's kind of like the Jewish Christmas. <laughs> you know? I mean, Jewish children like this because uh, they have these candles that they light. You know, they have these, they, they light each day of Hanukkah. And the tradition is Jewish children get a gift on each day. You know? So <laughs> I remember when I was in high school, we had a lot of Jewish students and we were all jealous of these Jewish kids who would say they got another gift this day. They got another. <laughs> it wasn't just one day. It was like every day, you know, it's a good thing. All right, let's stop here for today, and uh, we will see you next, next uh, semester, Lord willing. And uh, we'll come back here to John chapter 10. Thank you.